Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you and ready to help you move into the weekend talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, a little best of this weekend. Revisit some of our favorite interviews. It's this dog days of August. What better way to spend it than reading some books? And if you're going to read some books, why not let them be on the intersection of sports and society, right? Why don't we go to our first interview now and get things kicked off? Susie Petricelli is former captain of the Harvard women's soccer team, youth coach, producer, a long list, along with author of the great book, Raised a Warrior, a memoir of soccer, grit, and leveling the playing field. Susie, thank you for rescuing me from a challenge where Jeff's going to have somebody take shots at me on goal in soccer. How are you today? I am so good. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I and I totally agree. My heart breaks every time the goalie goes the wrong way. <laughs> Jeff is just not a penalty kick fan. It, well, except all. except when you're shooting, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't mind it when the goalie goes the other way when you're shooting. You know, we wanted... no, of course. Yeah, you breathe a, you breathe a sigh of relief, right? We we wanted to to start off with soccer. We'll get into your story, but it, soccer sort of plays such a big part. You have such a passion, but you're not the only one in your family that, that plays soccer. Jeff is fascinated by the fact that your twin sister plays soccer. Tell us about that and what it was like to play together. Yeah, so I have an identical twin sister, and we were very, very different off the field, totally different personality. We dress completely different. Um, and so we didn't get along that well off the field, but when we were on the field together, um, you know, it was just like, like easy and we felt we were you know grateful to have each other. Um, and we worked as a team. So it was a really funny dynamic between the two of us. And actually it ended up working out and the story's in the book, but it ended up working out that the two of us together really got into, or had the opportunity to go play either at Stanford or Harvard because we, we had each other. She actually was the motivated, more motivated one academically and in school. And I was sort of like the athlete twin, right? And, um, but if it weren't for each other, we wouldn't have had those opportunities. So it's, it's a pretty cool story the way it all worked out. Yeah, but wasn't there an incident where as a result of you and your sister playing on the same pitch that, <laughs> that you got a red card? Yes. Yeah, that was really crazy. And I think that was partially our fault because we always thought it was fun to have like very close numbers. So she was two and I was 12, which in hindsight is never a good idea for twins, um, just for anybody out there. Um, and yeah, so this ref gave my sister a yellow card in the game. And then he mistakenly, um, you know, I, I had a tackle that was questionable, but not worth a red card. And um, he immediately went to the red card for me. And I was like, God, that's weird. And of course, my dad's going crazy on the sideline, and the coach is getting crazy, going crazy. The coach gets kicked, kicked out. My dad gets kicked out, and then all of a sudden, it hit us like, oh my God, my, you know, Kate, it was the twin thing. Um, so yeah, it, it, we we have had some funny moments as as twins, um, but it's yeah, it's, that was a, that was a good one. All right, well, we we've talked to other athletes who have twins, and and I have a, a pair of nieces who are identical twins who played field hockey. We got to ask, was there a time that you guys switched jerseys? You know, not jerseys, no, but we did, we did, actually, it's a funny story. So when we were about, let's see, 10 or 11, you know, you get, that question gets asked a lot. They're like, well, have you ever tricked, have you ever switched classes? Have you ever tried to trick your teachers? And honestly, we felt kind of like losers because we had never tried it. We'd never like had the courage (laughs) to try it. 
So we actually like we kind of winked at each other one day. We were like, let's just say we did it, and nobody found out. So we did. So we started telling people that we did it, and nobody found out. And, and then later on, we're like, yeah, we totally made that up. You know, like 15, 20 years ago, we're like, yeah, that was all made up. Yeah, we didn't actually do that. We all didn't right. actually do that. All right. So who's going to fess up to writing this amazing book, Raised a Warrior, a memoir of soccer, grit, and leveling the playing field? Was it you or your sister? <laughs> It was me. Yeah, my my sister's a little bit more private. You you know you can tell in the book. I, I don't uh, hold back um, on anything. My sister's a little more private, so I actually had to check with her along the way, um, like every six months or so, as I was writing to make sure she was cool with everything I was putting in the book. From what I've read and and the interviews I've seen, it seems like this was a journey for you to to uncover some of the injustices you didn't realize. When did you begin to realize? the disparity between men's and women's sports and, and who did you discuss that with to, to figure this all out? That's such a good question. You know, I, I didn't realize it really until I was in my twenties. Um, it started to hit me a little bit when I was at Harvard, but I really, you know, I'm, I'm very naive and I also just didn't want to believe. I really just didn't want to believe that I, you know, ha I was being considered like a, like less than um, as a woman, as, as a female athlete. Um, it's almost like, you know, like when I was a kid, my, I grew up in this football family and baseball family, and my dad was a football star. My grandfather was a football star. And, um, you know, I, I was, I sort of, I was looking forward to it for like, you know, the first six years of my life really with like a passion. And then like, before I even had an opportunity to play or to prove myself and like earn some respect, it was, it's almost like getting benched before you even have a chance, you know, before there's even a tryout. Um, so I had those moments looking back where I was, uh, you know, as like a 20, you know, mid 20 year old thinking like, oh, yeah, that, that really didn't feel good. But but I had had the opportunity to play soccer because they had just started allowing girls to play soccer in my town in AYSO um, when I was about six, so five, six. So, you know, we played one year on the boys team. And then the following year, um, it, you know, after that, they had enough girls to let uh, to have enough girls teams for everybody to play. But. Um, but it really wasn't until my 20s when I real I was sort of walking down a hallway in one of the Harvard athletic buildings. And at Harvard, they have a, like a black and white picture of every team from every year. It's really cool. It's really beautiful. And so I'm, I'm looking at our photo from the previous year, and then I'm walking backwards in time, looking at all the photos. And I realized, you know, looking back like 12 pictures, and that was the end of the women's team. And then the men, the pictures for the men's team go down another hallway, they turn a corner, they go down another hallway, and then they turn another corner. You know, I mean, the, the, the Harvard men's soccer team is one of the oldest soccer teams in the country. So, um, you know, and so the, that was like a real visual, like striking visual moment for me when I realized that the history of women's sports is so much shorter than the history of men's sports. Um, and then, you know, obviously it took, you know, it took me really this next 20 years, 25 years, and I'm still learning, you know, I mean, there's still new statistics um, coming out. Like we just heard last week um, for the anniversary of Title IX, which is a couple weeks ago on June 23rd, we just heard that, you know, girls in the United States are still getting a billion dollars less in sports scholarships in the United States. So, you know, these statistics are still coming out. We're, uh, you know, I'm like the, the awakening is still happening. So I feel like, you know, we as far as we've come and the opportunities, you know, there's obviously, you know, hundreds of thousands of girls that now have opportunity to, opportunities to play sports in high school and college, which is absolutely amazing. Um, but we still have so far to go. One of the things that you've sort of taken on pretty directly that seems like a contributing factor to all this is the disparity in media coverage for women's sports. Can, yeah. you, can you talk more about that and why 
more coverage is so important to growing sports for women as a whole? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Thank you. And, and by the way, I'll just take a second to, to tell both of you that including, you know, including me today in your show and including a story about, you know, girls experience in sports is like huge progress. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to all female athletes. Um, so I really can't thank you enough for that. Um, but, but yeah, so basically I learned, and I, you know, this is one of those things I'm still, you know, these statistics are starting to come out, right. We're starting to get more data, um, which is so important, but you know, there's a statistic that's pretty shocking that women's um, sports in the United States still only gets 4% of the total sports media landscape, which, and actually I, the statistic that I heard was that it, we were at 6% about 10 years ago, we're actually losing ground. So we're going, we're now we're down to 4% of sports media. And you have to remember that includes negative press. <laughs> so the amount of positive you know, media for women's, for female athletes and for female teams is so like, you know, so low. I mean, the gap is so huge. And it's like, when you think about it that way, then you start to like, your mind is like explodes. You're like, okay, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Like we're not on, we're not in sports papers. We're not in sports magazines. We're not really, we're not on sports radio yet. Thank God for you guys. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're not in, you know, there's, we're not in sports movies yet, really. We're not very many. We're not in sports books. Publishing my book was not easy. I mean, people, everybody basically told me there's no market for a girl's sports story. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm trying to grow and prove. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a struggle, you know, and I think that, that you know, the, my generation and the following generations though are really going to change that. Um, and you know, the, the wave is starting, the wave is growing, girls are, girls are earning respect. You know, it's, we're not being given respect. We're earning it one by one. And, and, um, you know, and I also think the important thing too is, is dads want that, you know, like one of the cool things about my book is I'm getting like a lot of very cool responses from dads who have daughters who are female athletes. You know, my, the story of me and my bonding with my dad through sports and, you know, it's, it's an easy way to connect with anybody, right? It, it, you're, you can you can watch a game and you can connect with your dad about his favorite sport and you can love it with him and um, and I think that's one of the ways that uh, we're going to move things forward is, is with dads and daughters and um, and the you know enjoying enjoying sports together and, and respecting each other through sports. You know, you talk about about the prevalence of or the lack of prevalence of media when it comes to women's sports. This past week, we had an, we had something which I thought was pretty cool, which was Candace Parker has now been announced to be on the cover of NBA yes. 2K. What is yes. a moment like that? You know, people I've heard people say, well, "What's the big deal?" Tell tell us what and tell our audience what the big deal is about that incident, that that uh, announcement. Well, it's I mean, it's so many levels. Um, like the first thing that pops to mind is, is first of all. There's not a lot of representation for female athletes in video games at all. Um, and there's really not a lot of video games in general for girls. Um, there's not a lot. Of, and that goes back to, you know, there's not a lot of tech. Girls are, girls are not in math and engineering and science. And, um, you know, I mean, I could go on and on. But, um, but this in particular was very, very exciting. And I don't know if you guys noticed that there was a ton of uh, backlash, too, online. Um, there was a lot of, of uh, people who automatically said why why would they put a woman on the cover of, of this of this video game um and you know and i'll and i'm being nice about the comments that you know there was a lot of trolling online about about their decision um but i, I think it's i think it's a huge step forward i think you know it's it what it means to me is that 
people in the, people in decision making roles are valuing female athletes the same as their male athletes, and that is such a huge step forward for us. And, and when you see, just see that cover when you're in the store, just like when you see your book in in, in a bookstore, when you see more of that, what is the influence not on 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 young girls coming up, but also on young boys? On boys too. It really is. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, it's the whole thing about. You know, even in in my town, I hear dads and and boys say, "Well, you you know, like they're saying to a a boy who maybe didn't play well or maybe had a bad day, oh, you, you know, you played like a girl today or something like that." Or even even sometimes as a joke, they could say it innocently, "Oh, you you know, you're playing like a girl." Maybe they don't really mean it um, in a negative way, but it's still a joke, right? And it's still kind of ridiculing. Um, so you know, now that that like it's changing the narrative, right? It's changing the it is. You're getting rid of the stigma, and um, it's, it's so important for little boys, I agree with you, and, and everyone to see, you know, a female, strong, badass woman on the cover of this video game. You know, you, you talk about all the things that sports can teach us, and, and we like to talk about that a lot, the impact that sports has on society and community. Can you talk for us about the lessons you think are learned, not just on the field, but off the field, that athletes can benefit from, particularly women? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that's that I could go on and on about that too, but it's one of my favorite things to think about. And, and as I reflect on my life as an athlete that, you know, I, there's more and more things that I realize I learned from sports, but, you know, obviously sportsmanship, um, you know, learning how to be a competitor, um, learning how to be inclusive, the discipline, the commitment, and really, and really like the grit, which it's funny because the, the publisher, I didn't realize when you publish a book, the author has very little control over the subtitle. Um, and so the publisher, you know, wrote or pre- presented the subtitle to me, Soccer, a memoir of soccer, grit, and leveling the playing field. And to be honest with you, I was a little uncomfortable, I guess, about the word grit, because to me, that's something that you don't like bestow upon yourself. Like, I wouldn't say, just like I wouldn't say like, oh, I'm the best one out there today, you know? I, I would never say, okay, well, I am, I'm gritty. Um, like it's, it's something that you have to earn and that, you know, you, you, other people have to, have to, if you're lucky, would honor you with saying that. But, but so they, they use that word in the title. And, um, you know, I think that like looking back now, realizing, you know, it, that's one of the most important things that girls can learn in life. And, and not it's partially because being a girl, you actually have to be grittier, right? You are going to face barriers. You, people are going to tell you you can't dream certain things. People are going to tell you you don't belong in that boardroom. People are going to tell you you don't belong in that sport. Um, and you just have to be gritty and you have to believe in yourself and, you, and you know, you have to you have to ignore them and you have to stick with your dream for a very long time and it's very hard. You know, Susie, in addition to the book, which again is called Raised a Warrior, a memoir of soccer, grit, and leveling the playing field, you're doing so much more. Soccer was just a start for you. Um, do you if you have a minute, we wanted to talk to you about some, one of your other projects, which is st- apparently started with you not realizing that, that Pele's daughter lived <laughs> not far from you. Yes. Yeah, she lived over my back fence, which is so funny. Yeah, a mutual friend of ours walked into our house, um, and you know, she, my, my whole family's there. My, my in-laws are there. All my, my husband played soccer with me at Harvard. Um, all of his siblings played Division One soccer. Uh, my father-in-law is an Italian uh, soccer fanatic, um, and so you know, there's soccer balls everywhere and and jerseys everywhere. And so my friend walked into our house, and she said. 
she's like, wow, you guys are really into soccer. It's like, did you know Pele's daughter lives right over your back fence? <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, I was so stunned. And I literally, like, from that moment, started, like, peeking over my back fence to see <laughs> if he was ever there. I thought, and I really was thinking to myself, well, he's got to be there, like, on holidays, right? He's got to visit his family on Christmas. Like, so I would def I would be, like, you know, like paying special attention on holidays to see if he was ever there. But we ended up not meeting until two years later, until we had actually moved out of that house, the same friend that, cause at that point I was pretty, you know, I was about three quarters way done with this book and Kelly had started work, working on this film called warriors of a beautiful game. And they, the, the two, the two are very much um, symbiotic. Her film was looking at, the lack of opportunities and the lack of, of uh, soccer infrastructure for girls in Brazil. And my book obviously was looking at the same thing for, um, but from an American perspective. So this friend of ours literally set us up at like a, you know, at like a dinner next, basically purposely sat us next to each other at this dinner and was like, you know, you guys are idiots. How have you not met? Um, so we ended up uh, talking that night, almost like, you know, those moments where you're like, the whole world kind of hazes out and you're just focused on one conversation. Yep. Um, so we, we were like, we were like that and we kind of been, you know, getting, you know, basically best friends and since that night and we worked, we were collaborating as friends on the book and the film together. And then finally she asked me to be a producer on the film. So, um, uh, we traveled around the world, uh, for about a year and a half. Um, filming this amazing documentary about looking at what women's professional, what the lives of women's professional footballers looks like in six different parts of the world. Um, so we went to England, France, um, Africa. Um, we went to the Orlando Pride. Um, and uh, we went to, to um, where else did we go? Paris. Anyway, it was, it was, it was absolutely the most incredible year I've had. Um, and the film now is in editing, and we're hoping that it will be out this winter. Well, when it comes out, we hope to have you back to talk about it. We encourage people to go out and get the book, and we appreciate what you're doing out there fighting. Thanks for giving us a few minutes to talk about it and talk about the issues. I mean, you guys, I really can't thank you enough. This is a huge opportunity. I love sports radio, and, you know, it's, it's not lost on me that, that what you guys have done for me here. So thank you so, so much. Uh, thank you. Best of luck with everything. Thank you. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Jeff, that was a pretty enlightening and timely interview, given all the talk lately about women in sports. What's your thoughts? I just thought that Susie is a true inspiration, her story, and even what she's doing now to help women in sports. It's it definitely something to keep watching. Why don't you tell our listeners what direction we're going to go in with our next interview? And now we're going to continue with Jesse Washington, senior writer from The Undefeated with ESPN. Uh, he did, he's talked to us several times. This is the first time that he talked to us, which is what we're going to hear, is the one where he wrote a book with John Thompson and talking about the influence and impact of John Thompson on society and Georgetown sports. We know that you will like this interview as much as we did. Let's go to it.
Jeff, we've got something special going on now. We're going to bring on Jesse Washington, senior writer for ESPN's The Undefeated, award-winning writer, including Journalist of the Year Award from the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, co-author of the John Thompson Jr. autobiography, I Came as a Shadow. Jesse, thanks so much for giving us some time to talk about this all. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we we appreciate it. Uh, we, we really enjoyed the book and had so many questions coming out of it. John Thompson, obviously a, a fascinating man to begin with. And here you are, you get all this time with him. I wanted to start at the beginning. How, how did you become involved with the project? And, and can you tell us about the first time you met with him and his family? Sure. You know, Coach didn't know me, or, and I don't think he'd ever heard of me. But some of the folks who were helping him put the project together were familiar with my work. And I was one of the candidates to write the book. So he interviewed a number of people and I went over to his house to meet him, his daughter, Tiffany, and his son, John. And I wouldn't call it a grilling, but it was definitely a stiff questioning. And coach is a tremendous teacher. And, um, you know, but fortunately I had done my homework. And so when he asked me questions like, you've never written a book like that before, what makes you think you could write mine? You know, I had some decent answers ready. And I think that one of the reasons he chose me among many was that we both really cared about the fact that this was a book more than basketball. It wasn't about um, how he strategized to win this game or to beat that game or stuff like that. It was about all the things that are important about the game of basketball, but take place off the court, that take place in your mind, that take place in the community. Uh, things like that. So he could tell that I really cared about that. And I think that's one of the main reasons why he chose me. You know, in the introduction to your book, you make that point where you say, I always planned to be a teacher, not a basketball coach. I use basketball as an instrument to teach. I felt a responsibility to broaden my players' perspectives of the world and themselves. What was the motivation for him to be a teach and do more than, as he says, talk about how to run a 2-2-1 zone presser or fast break. Yeah, that was coach's mission in life uh, to teach. And he got it from, as he would say, busy environment and time. So his mother was a trained teacher. She had a college degree, uh, but she was not able to practice her profession due to segregation and lack of opportunities at that time. So she had to clean houses. And then he encountered uh, several very strong teachers who did a lot for him in his formative years, and he credits them with his desire to be a teacher. Also, um, he had several uh, very influential figures in his life at Police Boys Club Number 2 in Washington, D.C., where he grew up playing sports and hanging around, and there were guys there who were like youth counselors, you know. They were coaches also, but they didn't care as much about these games as they did about making sure that you – knew how to handle yourself properly uh, in a formal setting or teaching you how to talk to people in a way to come off well in an interview. Uh, Mr. Javel Kenner, Mr. Bill Butler, and Julius Wyatt, these were other of his greatest mentors as young people. So if you add it up, all of the people he mentions in the book who had a tremendous influence in as a child, starting with his mother and father, and then black women teachers, these black men who were mentors at the boys club, those are his role models. He wanted to be like them, and they imprinted upon him a desire to help others through education. He didn't have the easiest life. You know, the nuns at the Catholic school insulted his intelligence. He, he had 
race challenges that he faced during his playing career. He faced loss and challenges, but at the same time, he became a trailblazer for other black coaches in the book. It says, but as I got further in my career, basketball became a way of kicking down a door that had been closed to black people. It was a way for me to express that we don't have to act apologetic for obtaining what God intended us to have. And then it goes, all this came out of the strong responsibility. I felt to teach kids more than how to throw a ball through a hoop. He recognized the role that, that he had, but when did he realize just how much of a difference and an influence he was making as he kicked down that door for other people? I'm glad you picked up on that. That's a really cool question. And I think he realized it when people started coming up to him and saying, thank you. And like he says in the book, they weren't saying thank you for, because I was beating St. John. They were saying thank you because of what he accomplished, what he represented. Coach Thompson is very clear in his book that he knew he had to win in order to do anything. If he didn't win, nobody would listen to what he had to say. He would not be an example for anybody. But once he won, he recognized that he meant to other people, that he represented excellence and achievement through intellectual means. He thought his way to greatness. You know, Coach Thompson was not uh, who he became because of his athletic ability, although he did have plenty of that. And so when people would come up to him and say thank you, when his kids would graduate and then go on to make a difference in the community, there's several very poignant moments in the book where he describes his former players who we never heard of, who probably only scored a handful of points in their four years at Georgetown, but they made an impact on their community in a very meaningful way. And he said, that's Georgetown basketball. So I think when those things started to happen, then he figured, yeah, okay, I'm accomplishing my goals and I'm making a difference in the world. I wanted to see if you could expand on it, actually, because one of the people that I've seen you talk about is Lonnie Doran, who played for Thompson, but never in a game, graduated with his diploma. But John seems so proud of what he did after he left school and how much that meant to him. Can you talk about that? Yeah, thanks for asking, because this was I never saw Coach Prouder than when we were sitting around with Lonnie Duran at Boys Club Number Two, and Mr. Duran is now the director of Boys Club Number Two. So uh, Lonnie's uh, Lonnie's younger brother, John Duran, aka Bebe, was a star and went to the NBA. Lonnie did not. Lonnie played very sparingly, but he went back to the community after he graduated. And there was a, a neighborhood in D.C. called Sersum Corda. And it was federally subsidized housing for lower income people. And to sort of condense the story, this was prime real estate and the city tried to basically take it over and do a big new expensive housing development, housing, commercial, something like that. Now, you know what happens when, when that goes down. All the residents who live there, the poor folks, the people who have been there for generations, they get moved out and nobody really knows or cares where they go. So Lonnie Duran was determined that this would not happen. And so he teamed up with one of his former Georgetown teammates, Felix Yeoman, and they fought the city for years and years. And they mobilized the tenants. And at the end of the day, they secured a $62 million deal, which included all sorts of provisions guaranteeing the continuation of housing for the local residents. It it maintained affordable housing in this prime real estate only blocks from the U.S. Capitol and had all sorts of other perks that they negotiated 
for the residents who had really belonged there. And Coach Thompson said, I'm as proud of what Lonnie did as I am of my guys who went to the NBA in the Hall of Fame. And, and the quote that really stuck with me, and he said it verbatim, he looked at me and he said, Jesse, that's Georgetown basketball, which is really a profound statement because it has nothing to do with sports. <laughs> you know, it has to do with the community. It has to do with helping others. It has to do with two of his guys who got their diplomas going back to the neighborhood that, that put them in a position to succeed and reaching down and lifting other people up. Like, I love that story about uh, Coach Thompson. And to me, that really sums up his life's mission. I'm going to educate these kids. Felix Yeoman and Lonnie Duren are not guys that anybody knows for basketball. But in that community, they know them because they made a difference. Well, one of the things is it's not just, just that he educated students and the people that went to Georgetown. What, what always impresses me about a good book is, is when I learn something about a subject matter I already know stuff about. People know, people in the sports world know so much about John Thompson, and there's so much that comes out in this book that we still didn't know. And to me, one of the most fascinating things was how candid he was in the book about why he was hired by Georgetown and confronting their past. Can you talk about what he thought his role was and why he decided to take on such a heavy role with regard to coming to Georgetown despite their past? Yeah, well, let, let me take a moment here to really thank you guys and uh, for the depth at which you engaged with this book and the way you've read it and really, you know, are, are picking up on some really important things. And Coach Thompson would be so pleased to, to hear you guys asking these questions. He loves nothing more than to, to uh, excite the curiosity of people in an intellectual sense. So he would be so pleased. I wish he could be doing this interview instead of me. So the way he got hired at Georgetown was really amazing. And you have to really go back to when he graduated from high school in 1960 as one of, if not the most highly recruited player in the city of Washington. Scholarship offers to all the big schools, but not Georgetown because Georgetown's team in 1960 was segregated. Fast forward 12 years later, the city has rioted after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Racial strife has torn apart the country. And Georgetown looks out over the smoldering ruins of black Washington and says, we have to do better. We're letting down our responsibility to our community and to our educational mission because we don't have any black people at our school. And when I say we don't have any, I don't mean that literally, but figuratively. There were only a handful of black students at Georgetown. I don't know how many, if any, black professors they had. And by the way, their basketball team had a couple black guys, but they were three and 23. And so Georgetown decided, and their admissions director, Charlie Deacon, said, hmm, one of the ways that we can set Georgetown on the right path is to get a, a kick-ass basketball team up in here. And Charlie Deacon didn't say this explicitly, but here is the thought process that Coach describes in the book. Well, they knew that there were a lot of good black basketball players in Washington. They knew I was a black coach who had a lot of these good black players on my high school team. So that is how they hired Coach John Thompson. Yes, he was an outstanding high school coach, but the main reason they hired him is because he's black. Now, I guess they sort of got lucky, and they, and they stumbled upon one of the greatest coaches and educators in the history of the game. But the primary thing they were looking for was skin color. So this is an amazing example of some of the 
the confounding situations that Coach Thompson found himself in and had to reconcile. Yes, he deserved the job. Yes, he was the best candidate, as he subsequently proved. But that's not why he was hired or not why he was primarily hired. You know, they wanted a black coach, and they went after John Thompson, who was the best black coach and a native of Washington, D.C. So, you know, what do you do with that? You know, that's part of what goes into this whole psychology that Coach had and his whole set of experiences that informed all of the things that he did later. I mean, as he says in the book, Georgetown went from not recruiting me because I was black to hiring me because I was black. It's a fascinating situation. How much, if any, of this book and the writing of it do you think for him was about setting the record straight? He, he was somebody that was sometimes viewed differently and misunderstood. He was seen as intimidating because of his size and the stands that he took for race. Was any of this about him telling his story in his own words because he felt like people always interpreted him their own ways? Some of it was, yes. And the main thing that really comes across in the book, the, the, the biggest thing that he wanted to correct was the idea that he intended to intimidate people because that was by far the most prevalent and I think most hurtful for him mischaracterization, more so than people calling him a racist because he knew he wasn't a racist. It was absurd when you look at the number and depth of the relationships he had with white people. You know, um, he, that was just crazy on its face. But to be consistently accused of trying to bulldoze people and buffalo them, as he would say, or steamroll them or intimidate them or force them to do something with the threat of physical violence, that was deeply hurtful to him, although he didn't say so explicitly. But I think that pain comes through in the pages. And he addressed it very directly and consistently in the book. I think that was the main misperception that he wanted to correct. But this is not a book where he settles scores. In fact, I really had to urge Coach to talk about some of the people who had wronged him. He didn't want to throw people under the bus, even if they deserved to be there. You know, he was very kind in his book to a lot of folks and has um, like a sin-covering eye in this autobiography. So, you know, he could have settled a lot more scores, and I'm sure he had a lot more to settle, but he chose not to. The biggest thing that he chose to deal with was the idea, the mischaracterization that he intended to bully people. As somebody who who spent so much time with him uh, putting together this book, what? how did your view of him change from the time that you were a college student at Yale to the to the time that you finished the book yourself? It did change um, because I realized that, I mean, I knew the reputation and I knew what I saw on TV and I was a voracious reader, so I knew all the stuff I read. But what I came to understand through being with him was that his reasons for doing all these things and all those reasons primarily revolved around his desire to be a teacher and a protector. You know, his earliest teachers protected him. He had problems, educational difficulties, insecurities, and his teachers protected him in those areas. And he always did the same thing for his players, even when he was criticized for it, especially when he was criticized for it. So I came to understand, I, I sort of developed this, and, you know, and this was my view of him, so it didn't belong in this book because this was his book to describe himself as he saw fit. But I came away with a picture of him as like the mama grizzly bear, you know, 
Number one, he had so many strong women influences in his life and was a champion for women and giving women opportunities before it was fashionable to do so. So I don't think Coach would be mad at being compared to a mama grizzly bear. And he describes himself as a mama's boy, but he was down to protect his kids. And his kids were his players in addition to his biological children, and he would protect them at all costs. And if you came close to messing with them, that's when he would get really fierce and you thought that your life was in danger, you know. But the mama grizzly bear doesn't want to kill you. She just wants you to turn around and leave her kids alone, you know. And, so and one, of those, I, one of those kids, I, I'd be remiss if we didn't ask you because I want to, I know you're tight on time, but we're a Philly show, so we got to ask you about one of those kids, Alan Iverson. The the special relationship he had with him when Alan went into the Hall of Fame, he said, no other schools were recruiting me anymore. My mom went to Georgetown and begged John Thompson to give me a chance, and he did. Can you talk about how special the relationship was between Allen and Coach Thompson? Yeah, I mean, Philly fans will not be disappointed. Of all of Coach's great players, Hall of Fame players, Allen is the only one who gets his own chapter. Because Coach understood how special Allen was and what a special place he holds in basketball history. Um, he loved that boy. He loved that boy. That was, that was Those are his words, you know. And... He respected Allen for being able to overcome this tremendously difficult and unfair start that Allen had. Because let's not forget, Allen Iverson was unjustly convicted as an adult at age 17 of a crime. And there was no evidence, real good evidence for that conviction, as was later determined in court when his conviction was thrown out. So let's just start there. And then Allen Iverson lost every single college scholarship that he had, which had to be more than 100. Nobody wanted to help him except Coach Thompson. And I, I hope that, that Philly people will read that part of the book for themselves. I don't want to ruin the story and let Coach tell it, but the story of how Allen and his mom came to, to talk to Coach and how he got on that team is amazing. And it shows a lot about Allen, his mom, and Iverson, and especially Coach Thompson, why he took him on his team. Because he didn't know that he was going to be the Allen Iverson. Yeah, he knew he was a good player. He knew he was potentially a great player, but we didn't know he was one of the all-time greats who would do incredible things. Like, out the, nobody played like Iverson as a freshman for Georgetown before that, ever. So, um, and, you know, even in the book where we talked about Coach protecting his kids and everything he did was about protecting his kids, he protected Allen Iverson in his book. Obviously, Allen has had a lot of difficulties off the court that have been well chronicled. Coach was not interested in talking about any of that in his book. And why would he? People know that already. He was talking about how when he told Alan to do something, Alan always did it. Whatever he asked, he practiced hard. He was always on time. He always went to class. He was respectful. <laughs> you know, that's the Alan Iverson that Coach Thompson had. I will let loose one detail from the book. After Alan got to Philly, a reporter said, hey, you got some new ink. What would Coach Thompson think about those tattoos? And Alan said, if Coach Thompson was here, I wouldn't have these new tattoos. <laughs> you know, so there was a mutual respect that went both ways, you know. And at the same time, Coach let Allen be Allen. And I really think that, you know, what made Iverson so special beyond his ability was his refusal to act like people said he should act. He was going to be him no matter what and be true to himself. And I think he got some of that from Coach Thompson. You know, because everybody wanted Coach Thompson to sit down, to shut up, to be quiet, to not play so aggressively with his team just because of their own insecurities. And, and Coach, I, Coach uh, Thompson was like, nah, I will be me. 
And that's Allen Iverson, too. So I think he got some of that from Coach. It was a tremendously loving relationship. If it was not for John Thompson, we would not know the name Allen Iverson today, period, point blank. The book is I Came as a Shadow. Jesse, we could talk to you all day about this. I encourage everybody to get the book from the small things of why Coach Thompson wore the towel over his shoulder to the big things of the relationships people never knew about across the court and off the court. You, you really capture something like, like Jeff and I said, we really learned a bunch. So we appreciate the time you gave us. Love to have you back on some other time to talk this and other things going on in the world. And I uh, hope you have a great new year. Thanks so much for the time. You guys are great. This was a tremendous interview. Thank you so much. Jeff, I always find it fascinating when we get to talk to Jesse Washington, but that interview, hearing about Coach Thompson and everything he stood for, I really enjoyed that. I'm glad we could hear that again. It was interesting to hear about John Thompson and to learn so much about him. Um, Just the behind the scenes, how much he cared about the players and how much he cared about the causes. You know, you, you talk about caring about players and causes. Let, let's go to a different type of interview. Let's let's go to something people care about in terms of what happened in 1984 with our interview, looking at glory days, that period that changed sports and culture to this day, basically. Let's go to it, and we'll come back, and we'll talk more. We're joined by jour- one of the best sports journalists in America, Sports Illustrated executive editor, Correspondent on 60 Minutes, author of numerous books, including his latest Glory Days, the summer of 1984, and the 90 Days that Changed Sports and Culture Forever. John Wertheim, thank you for the time. Did I cover everything that you do? His time's up now. You're going <laughs> through all that stuff. <laughs> You're a busy man. <laughs> You're very kind. John, I got to tell you, Jeff, Jeff will let you know, I am not what you would call a fast reader, and I have gotten into this book, and somehow I'm up to the Olympics in Chapter 20, and I'm shocked myself because I don't normally do that. But you wrote in the book a line, history doesn't send out invitations in advance, uh, and that's what makes this summer special. Why was now the time for you to write this book, and, and how did you choose this period? You were, what, 13 years old in 1984? 13 years old. I mean, the, the origin story is that uh, my, Michael Jordan had come to my hometown for uh, Olympic basketball tryouts, and you'd, you'd see him around at mini golf and at the movie theater, and uh, it was sort of a special summer for me in, in, in retrospect. Um, but no, I mean, this, this was not a summer where you said, oh man, we're living in history. You know, 1968, or you know, pick your, your early year, 71 you know something big is happening. Even, I don't know if you guys saw the 30 for 30 with it's like the OJ chase and the Knicks are playing and the, the Stanley Cup's going on. Um, that you, you knew at the time this was a big deal. 84 just seemed like a pretty normal summer. And I don't know, there's an Olympics and uh, Reagan's going to win another term and this Michael Jordan guy's pretty good and Bird and Magic are playing. And it, it wasn't at the time especially momentous or turbulent or anything like that. It's just later you said, wait a second. David Stern's the commissioner. Bird plays magic in the NBA Finals. Michael Jordan gets drafted, and it's all in the same week. Or you say, wait a second, the Supreme Court had a decision about NCAA athletes and the NCAA's cartel powers, and that all happened in the summer of 84 just as we had it this week. And we had an Olympics that turned a profit and turned into big business. And now here, here we are in 2021, and we're going to have a COVID Olympics, not because of Simone Biles, but because of how much money is at stake. It, it just seemed like so much in sports that still was relevant today uh, took place that summer, but it wasn't like at the time it was, people didn't walk around saying, holy moly, we're living through history here. 
Well, yeah, and when you're 13 years old, it's it's a very influential period in your life. So you know you can you can think back to that time, and it means a lot to you. But when did you realize that it was a, a it was an influential time? You didn't realize it then. At some point, though, you realized, hey, this was an influential time, and this is worthy of a book. I, you know, I'd, I'd written a piece about that Jordan Summer for Sports Illustrated, and someone said, you, you should write a book about that. And I said, yeah, you know, my, my um, I, th- I think you had him on. My buddy Jack McCallum did a book on the, on the Dream Team in 92, and I didn't think there was enough for a book. But then I started poking around, and I sort of said, well, wait, wait a second. The, you know, born in the USA, Ghostbusters and, you know, Purple Rain came out in back-to-back-to-back weeks. And I said, well, yeah, wait a second, Wayne Gretzky won his first cup right as Bird and Magic were playing in the finals for the first time. And you just, you started to make this list and you added an Olympics. And then, you know, I found a couple of crazy stories, you know, the Patriots dynasty. And uh, you just sort of lay it all out there. And you say, you know, I know every, every summer's got to start, you know, every summer's got a hit movie. Every summer there's a new Wimbledon champion or new NBA champ. But I just thought objectively an incredible amount of really, important, memorable events happened in this, this one single summer. You use Michael Jordan as the parallel in his transformation from college athlete to basically global endorsement brand throughout that period. And, and you know, talk about how this summer sports became entertainment with endorsements and rights and cable fees. Sports started in one place and ended in some place very different. Can you talk about how Michael Jordan first changed that model in that summer and then how that influenced other things going forward? Yeah, my, I mean, but part of it's just, you know, Michael Jordan, I remembered when he, when he came to my town, he had given up his senior year at UNC. So he wasn't a, you know, he wasn't a college player anymore, but he hadn't been drafted. He was kind of in this no man's land, and he was, you know, he'd wear sandals and bop around town. And by the end of the summer, he's, uh, you know, in a, in a limo in Chicago with a gold medal around his neck. But I, but I think... Uh, one thing I, I really came away with a new respect for Jordan, because I think we all sort of say the same thing, which is a, amazing athlete, incredible basketball player. We never really knew what he stood for. He's very private now. He's kind of thoroughly and competitive. And even the last dance, you know, he didn't, wasn't necessarily a love letter to Michael Jordan. Um, I give him a lot of credit for really changing sort of the balance of powers with athletes. And he basically said, I, I don't want to just, get a shoe contract and get a bunch of free shoes and pose for a poster and maybe you pay me a few bucks and maybe you don't. I want some equity. I, I want to uh, be part of the upside. I want some of the profit. I want the shoe to have my name on it. Even with the Chicago Bulls, he said, look, I'm going to bring in fans. I want a bonus in my contract when the attendance goes up. And he said to his agent, look, I don't, I don't really, I don't need to endorse basketball. I want to endorse, you know, cars and underwear and mustard and you sort of look back at the endorsement landscape for athletes. You look at how much of athletes' income came from their, their teams and their prize money and their contracts as opposed to endorsements. And Jordan really is the guy who flipped that money. He's not the only one. Jack Nicholas did it too. But you know, in a team sports setting, Michael Jordan did more to enrich athletes, I would say, than, than anyone else and really changed the model and everything from the, the signature shoe to instead of getting paid, he wanted a stake in some companies. I mean, that's that's what Kevin Durant and I mean, you know, that's, that's something that's stuck around. And I think we, we think of Michael Jordan as kind of a, a great athlete, but sort of a bland figure that we never really knew 
what he stood for. He wasn't political. He wasn't social. He wasn't Charles Barkley. He wasn't Muhammad Ali. But I think Michael Jordan probably gets, you know, probably should get more credit than he does for uh, changing the power dynamic in sports. As much as Michael Jordan gets that credit and deserves that credit and probably deserves more, Peter, you write about Peter Ubaroth and the credit that he should get with regard to the 1984 Olympics. What was it about the Olympics that piqued your interest as far as how they changed the dynamic of endorsements for the Olympics? Um, I didn't realize sort of the extent to which the Olympics were really in trouble. And you had, um, you know, you, you had terrorism in 72. You had these huge cost overruns in 76. You had a boycott. In L.A., when they got the 84 Olympics, there were a couple of things. First of all, they, they didn't really have to beat out anyone because the only other city that even put in a bid was Tehran, who then had a, uh, like an insurrection and then withdraw their bid. So, so L.A. basically got these games by default. And then Los Angeles, not unreasonably, said, we'll host these Olympics, guys, but we're not going to – raise taxes. We're not going to go into debt here. You got to use the existing facilities. And Peter Uberoth is the guy who basically said, fine, and I'm going to run this like a business. And part of that meant cutting costs. And part of that also meant, you know, and this is like the Reagan 80s. This is squarely in the middle of sort of, uh, you know, Reagan deregulation, free market. Uh, Peter Uberoth said, look, you want to be an Olympic sponsor, you're going to bid. And if you want to be a network that broadcasts the Olympics, you're, you're going to bid. And we're going to do this competitively, and we're not going to be embarrassed about being capitalistic about this. And uh, I, I think I wrote in the book, though, the Lake Placid Games had about $10 million in sponsorship. Peter Uberoff set up a, a bidding war between Coke and Pepsi to be the official beverage of the Olympics. And, and Coke won with $12 million. So with one beverage sponsorship in this narrow category, he'd already eclipsed the total sponsorship from the last Olympics that were held in the U S and by the end, you know, it was not, no one was holding their nose. No one was embarrassed. It was about money. And the Olympics ended up in LA and 84 ended up bringing in a surplus, turning a profit. And this year they've got a billion in ad revenue. So you see where it's gone since we'll ask you ESPN and cable TV in a second, but I have to ask you, Michael Jackson led to Bob Kraft and the Patriots Super Bowl dynasty. Explain this to me. I, I sort of stumbled upon that one, and I, I mean, I don't know if I'd ever heard that. Um, you know, I, I wasn't the first person to write it, but uh, it's a wild story where Mike, Michael Jackson was king of the world, king of pop. He had Thriller, and for his next album, his parents basically said, you know, time to, uh, time to spread the wealth. And so Michael Jackson had a concert tour, the Victory Tour, with his brothers. Um, it was a fiasco. Don King was the tour manager. Michael Jackson didn't even want to be doing this tour, but um, the the tour was bankrolled by the Sullivan family that owned the Patriots, and they used the stadium as, as collateral. The tour lost a ton of money. There were all these, you know, dancers and elaborate sets, and it was a financial wreck of a tour. And the Sullivans had to sell the team, and through a number of uh, sort of dominoes falling, it, it ended up with Bob Kraft, and uh, he has a. He has a poster of the Victory Tour in his office and just sort of jokes, you know, if the, if the Jackson brothers had gotten along better or, you know, if Don King hadn't poisoned these relationships, who knows if uh, I get this team, who knows if there's ever a Patriots dynasty. So did he ever give them Super Bowl rings? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so the other thing is, is, is for those of us with kids, and both of us here have kids, is they can't picture a world without, like, ESPN and sports news. What was it? What was it about 1984 that brought about the rise of ESPN? 
Um, I mean, ESPN was, was about five years old in 84, but it had been bleeding money. And, you know, I like any startup that's to some extent to be expected. But part of the problem was that ESPN paid all these cable systems to get on their, you know, get on the range of channels. And around 84, ESPN says, wait a second, people love us. People want ESPN. No one's going to get cable if, if the package doesn't have ESPN. Why are we the ones that are paying them? They should be paying us. And there was sort of a, a showdown, and the, the cable systems blinked, and suddenly ESPN started getting a few pennies from every household. You know, fast, fast forward, and the number of households went about, you know, up about uh, 4x from 1984, and those pennies turned into the, the $7 some of us pay today. And ESPN also in, in 84 was sold to, um, to ABC, so it had sort of a new, you know, a media company owned it. And starting in about 84, ESPN isn't losing money, it's making money and then minting money. And then suddenly it's buying, you know, it's, it's spending that on rights fees and it's buying Monday Night Football. And because of these media rights, the franchises are worth more money and the players make more money and salary. And I think, um, yeah, I, I didn't quite put it every, all together going in, but by midway through the reporting, it becomes pretty clear that cable is a huge part of the uh, sports story of the last, you know, three, four decades. Jeff would kill me if I just ask about uh, World Wrestling Federation, but I'm going to ask you about the cultural impact of the movie-music-sports combination from Karate Kid with MMA to WWF partnering with MTV with their rock and wrestling. Tell me about the sports and the crossover between movie and music. Um, exactly. Yes. Some of it is more of this sort of cable landscape, right? And uh, M MTV is putting on these music videos, but they want to expand. And WWE sees this cable. You know, Vince McMahon was very early to see the cable wave coming, but said, hey, listen, we need to cross over. So you have this crazy event in 1984, a wrestling event with Cindy Lauper, but also with Hulk Hogan and Lou Albano. It airs in Madison Square Garden right before the Summer Olympics in 84. And against all odds, it's this huge crossover hit leads to what's become WrestleMania and was a huge kind of seminal moment in, in the WWE. Well, it was then WWF, but now the WWE's rise. And uh, I, Karate Kid was the summer of 84, and it's, it's kind of totally different where Karate Kid is just one of these entertainment pro – you know, well, it just hit, and there was nothing – I mean, I, I talked to Ralph Macchio, who, uh, who was great, but he's like, you know, we were filming this movie. We thought it was all kind of cheesy. And, you know, we, we, ate, we ate junk food and, like, played mini golf and drove around California in go-karts. But we were all kind of thinking, what are we going to do next? Nobody said, oh, this is going to be uh, our defining role. And just for whatever reason, it was the summer. It was Southern California. You know, our, our president was from there. The Olympics were going to be there. We're, whatever reason it was, this karate kid just – hit and I, I think it took about eight or nine days for it to make back its total budget and by the end of the summer it was this huge hit and it spawned sequels and a you know a youtube show 35 years later and you know again it's kind of this what we were talking about before where sometimes you just know your living history sometimes you know something is just a hero hamilton or you have these cultural phenomena and other times you just you can't really explain it it's just timing and vibe and mood and catch some lucky breaks and the the karate kid was uh a, a, an example of that all right john we got one minute left but we got to ask you every writer has a part of their book that they love the most what was the part that you enjoyed mo re writing about most oh man um i i think 
probably the just rehashing the, the Jordan uh, Jordan walking around my hometown, in, in part because the, the, the nostalgic, but also uh, just you, you realize never in a million years for a million reasons would that ever happen today. And uh, you sort of crystallized how far sports have come, but also kind of crystallized how special this was. I mean, the idea of, uh, you know, an, an A-list athlete with no security and no publicist and no membrane of, uh, of a handler just kind of bopping around and hanging out with teenagers because he was bored and uh, playing mini golf. Um, it, it ain't happening in 2021. The book, again, is Glory Days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. Go get it. You won't regret the time. John Wertheim, thanks so much for the time, for the great read, and we hope we get to talk to you again one day. You got it. Anytime. It was fun. Jeff, I love that interview because I don't know if people realize the impact that's still being felt today from the change in culture to the change in cable to the change in sports and sponsorships. Definitely something we're still talking about. Three great books by three great authors. I don't know what more you could ask in a book to tell a story, tell it well, and also show how it has impact on society. It's great summer reading. Might as well read until we get back next week for some live shows, right? We'll be back with a brand new show next week. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.